I understand where mothership comes from. They're going to say like, look, it's a winner take all mentality. I have to win this election. I've got to raise this money. It doesn't matter how I do it because what's most important is I win this election. But if you leave a trail of seniors who can't afford their medicine behind in the wake of that, like that's not okay. And I can't speak to the Republicans, but we need to be better than that. We have to be better than that. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Mike Nellis, who helps Democrats with online fundraising and digital persuasion, including for clients like Vice President Kamala Harris. His company is called Authentic, and they've helped raise hundreds of millions of dollars. We spoke about how Mike's career led him to entrepreneurship and about what kinds of online fundraising programs are both ethical and successful and what are not right. It's a good conversation. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Mike Nellis with Authentic. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Mike, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, I'm Mike Nellis. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Authentic. Um, it's a full-service digital communications and fundraising shop for Democratic campaigns and progressive causes. I've been working in Democratic politics for 15, 16 years now. Um, I started when I was 16. Um, I think by internet standards, that makes me an, an old grizzled veteran of digital organizing. Um, and in that time, I've worked for a whole host of, of, you know, really important races and candidates that I care a great, great deal about. Probably best known as the senior advisor to Kamala Harris for uh, many years from her Senate campaign through her presidential campaign, um, really helped to build up her digital presence and, and fundraising uh, strength. And in the last couple of years, uh, my firm has played a meaningful role in defeating Donald Trump. We did some really innovative advertising work for the Biden campaign. We played a meaningful role in flipping the Senate. Uh, we helped uh, John Hickenlooper raise tens of millions of dollars um, amongst other candidates we worked for. And in 2018, we also helped flip the House uh, by working on a few uh, key House races. Sounds like you've put yourself in a pretty good spot. Our team's done some really incredible work. Hey, I wanted to talk to you partially because of this long history that you have in the space and the accomplishments, and also because you had been quoted in a recent New York Times article that kind of put you at odds with another fundraising firm. My experience is that political consultants are a little reluctant to take each other on, that when they do, maybe there's something pretty deep and uncomfortable, or they wouldn't go out on a limb like that. I want to get to that. Before we do, let's just talk about your career in a little more detail because 
you talked about getting going at 16. That's reasonably unusual. What was the first entry point into politics and why did you do that? Yeah, I think my, my very first entry point was working on a state Senate race for, for a family friend who was a, a Republican. Um, so I, I won't make many friends admitting to, to that. But it was back at a time when there was such a thing as a, as a moderate Republican who actually cared about helping their constituents and helping people. But, you know, that sort of parlayed me into an interest in government and politics in the first place. And what ultimately happened for me was uh, I started to go to college. Um, I didn't see the value of going to college, so I was bored. Like what 18-year-old kid wouldn't be bored? And so I started to volunteer for this little-known Illinois senator um, who was running for president named Barack Obama. Um, and I think I was a, um, a quote-unquote fellow on his campaign. So I was unpaid, but working you know long hours to help him win uh, Pottawatomie County in the Iowa caucus and kind of parlayed that into my, my first job working on a Senate campaign in Nebraska, which is where I got my first opportunity to do digital fundraising work and just kind of went from went on from there. What was the race in Nebraska? Uh, it was for Scott Clev. Uh, he ran for United States Senate in 2008. And so what were you learning along the ways? What was getting you so attracted to the world of politics? You could source a lot of the way I feel in terms of getting involved in politics back to the Iraq war, which was raging at the time. I feel this makes me dated in the context of my, my staff, which are like super young and like 22 and um, are fighting for very different, very different issues. But I became politically active at a time when, you know, George W. Bush had just been reelected and um, the Iraq war was still raging. Um, there was a huge debate in the country about gay marriage and whether or not that should be legal. By the way, Bush ran a, a horrible, horrible homophobic 2004 presidential campaign, which like a lot of folks now kind of forget as they reminisce for the, the days of a, a George W. Bush presidency relative to Donald Trump. So those are sort of the, the salient issues that kind of were really driving me. It was, it was about equality. It was about justice. It was about what America's place in the world was relative to, you know, the war on terror and our involvement in Iraq. And I think some of the first, you know, political activities I ever got involved in were attending anti-war protests. For somebody who said that college was a little boring, you went on to quite a bit more schooling nonetheless. What were the degrees you took and why? Sure. Uh, well, I, I, like I said, I dropped out of school and, and I eventually, um, went back and, and got my, my bachelor's degree in political science. Um, for anybody who is thinking that a, a degree in political science will help you in your political career, I can assure you that it, it does not. Um, I have used it exactly zero times in the last 15 years. But then I decided to go back and, and get a master's degree in strategic communication at American University, uh, which really helped to, I think, really focus the way that I approach um, communication, really to give me like a, a formal background um, into how you can convince people to to take particular actions and mobilize them to, to, to get involved in the process. That's where I read uh, Made to Stick by the Heath Brothers, which is one of the most important pieces of literature that, that I've ever read when it comes to like how you can really craft a message that sticks with someone. Um, it's been a really big foundational piece for how I write and draft my content. And now I'm getting, a, I'm getting an MBA at the University of Notre Dame because uh, I find myself running a, a business with 40 to 50 employees and want to make sure I have the, the business knowledge and acumen and leadership skills that I need to run a large team. I don't know much about a strategic communications master's. Besides the book you mentioned, what else, what are the principles that you picked up there that you do apply? You know how college is, right? Like it's immediately hard to kind of like, you know, sort of resource bank of a series of things. But for me, it's like I, I walked away with 
the, the focus on like being concise. I focused on a need for like there to be like a memory peg in how you develop content. I think that in the political world, um, and I feel like this happens a lot on the Democratic side, we get so tied up in, oh, I have this cool acronym or our idea is the best or we're going to create this, you know, this piece of legislation that has like a, you know, an acronym style name and it does really well. And it's called the something something act. And we're expecting people to remember all of those things that we're doing for them. And Republicans, and, and to a certain degree, I think like the, the the Bernie Sanders left, do a much better job of simplifying their message in a way that's sticky. Like it's easier to remember Medicare for all than it is to remember the Affordable Care Act, right? Um, and Frank Luntz is sort of like a, you know, he's a, he's a gross mastermind of this, right? Like he's taken it to an extreme, but I think the fundamentals of that kind of communication works. One of the reasons that Bernie Sanders is so popular is because you could talk to almost anybody, whether they like him or they hate him, they know what he stands for because his message is so succinct and concrete. That's probably like my, my biggest takeaway from that. There's, there's surely like a lot more if I like really, I could probably find my notes behind me if you'd like me to go um, look at them. I'm a big writer. I write down everything. Um, I go back and look through my notes. So if you really want to look at my notes from uh, intro to strategic communication from a couple of years ago, I'm happy to send it to you. <laughs> I'm tempted, but I think I may be the only one. I noticed that you worked for Buzzmaker for a bit, and I ran into Matt McMillan, who founded that when he was not much more than a college kid, I think. What was that firm like to work with? I mean, it was it was small. Um, I think there were only there was only two of us. Um, so I was just uh, working on, you know, whatever Matt was bringing in. Matt would do a lot of international work and uh, would do some uh, stateside work. I mean, you know what I'll say the biggest difference between like Buzzmaker, at least at the time, I can't speak to the company now. I mean, like my company today is like when I was working there, I had five, 10, 15 clients at any given moment, right? Like the industry was still new. There wasn't the technical proficiency and the expectations of how you run those programs. So I was drowning all the time trying to manage all of these programs for these little house races. And now I think if you go to a firm, you know, a firm like mine or of a similar size, um, at least the ones that are focused on, you know, authentic and, and story based content creation, most of the client leads are really only working on like two or three projects total. So there's a lot more space and time and agency to be able to run a better program. Whereas like, and I don't fault this for Matt at all. I mean, it's what everybody was doing at the time. It was just, I, I couldn't run a good program if I was running 10 house races, period, relative to like what we can accomplish today. So that's probably the biggest difference. And, and then you did some work as a digital director for the Malloy campaign in Connecticut, right? Yeah. My friend Gabe, Gabe Rosenberg, who is a, is a wonderful human being, he um, hooked me up with the campaign um, and I moved out there for seven or eight months. Um, Malloy was, when I got there, our internal polls, I think, had us down like 10 points. And I think as folks will remember, 2014 was not a good year for Democrats. Very bad. I'll never forget feeling like that was like the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm going to step into this big campaign. I'm going to prove to everybody that I'm a great digital director and I can do all this great work. And I show up and on day one, I'm looking at an internal poll showing we're about to get smashed. And Dan Malloy pulled me aside, the governor himself, and he said, hey, I just want you to know, we're down, but we're going to win. And I've heard a million candidates tell me that they were going to win, that ultimately go on to lose. And so I just was like, okay, buddy, like, I'm going to do my best for you because I'm here. But like, you know, we're going to lose. You're not going to make up 10 points. We won by three on a night where almost everybody else lost. For God's sake, Mark Warner almost lost his race, I think, that night. I think, uh, was that... Trying to think who else. There was another like really close one. It was a Gene Shaheen, maybe it was really, really close. People didn't think it would be. Um, so even like out in, you know, the Northeast, like there were a lot of Democrats who lost statewide races and, and we managed to eke it out. Um, we had a historically bad opponent 
Tom Foley, in my opinion, one of the worst Republican candidates I've ever seen. Um, just like not natural in this at all. Made a ton of really bad unforced errors. Um, so I think we got a little bit lucky. But I'll also say like that campaign was really structurally smart, um, really well organized, had a great plan. It was one of the best experiences of my life, to be honest with you. What do you think makes a good digital director in a campaign these days? Digital is so often forgotten and not given the seat at the table that it deserves. Um, And so I think what you need to come in as a digital director, one, I think with no ego, um, and two, you've got to be ready to like run through a brick wall to get what you need. Um, Because if you're a digital director, you've got to fight a number of different fights, right? You've got to work with the communications team to build out a smart social media plan. You've got to work with your finance director to run a good digital fundraising program and We'll probably talk a little bit about this later, but there are different approaches to digital fundraising. There's the approach that my firm takes, which is to run an ethical program that's not scamming people out of their money. And then there's another way that other firms tend to take it. You know, most digital directors, in my experience, 99.9% of digital directors that I've ever met, they do not want to run a program based in scams, but they're often hired after their digital firm is hired. And it's very hard to convince the finance team to let that firm go to hire somebody like me that wants to do it the right way. And so a digital director has got to use some amount of their agency and their social capital to make that change. That's a hard thing to do. On top of that, if you're a digital director, you want to run a good internet first digital persuasion campaign on, on Facebook, Google search, and all the other places that we run digital ads. You've got to fight with the TV firm. You got to fight with the mail firm. You got to fight with all these older consultants who do really great work in the mediums that they work in but who don't always have a functional understanding of the internet and how it works. For a lot of folks, you're, you're, you're swimming upstream, right? Trying to get what you need to run the program. Um, and it's hard. What I will say is every cycle, it gets better. I worked with a crop of consultants and campaign managers in 2020 that were the most experienced and talented and, and, and internet savvy that I've ever worked with. This batch that I'm working with now and some of the races that we're doing are really, really smart. Um, and really putting the internet first. And, and I think we're going to continue to sort of get to that place where digital directors have the seat at the table that they deserve and are given the agency they deserve to run the program that they want. You moved on to revolution messaging, which was you know a very big player in the first Sanders campaign and in other parts of the political ecosystem at the time. What did you learn there? What was that experience like? And why'd you leave? I got to work with um, Tim Tagaris, who now runs uh, the firm Isle 518, and he really took the time to help teach me, I think, the ins and outs of digital fundraising and how you treat people ethically and honestly in a space that doesn't treat people ethically and honestly. And I got the opportunity to work on so many projects that I was really, really passionate about. You know, when I was 16 and I was protesting the Iraq war, if you had told that scruffy haired kid that he was going to go to work every day and help Bernie Sanders uh, on his presidential race, that he was going to work for moveon.org, he was going to work for the ACLU, he was going to work for OSHA Conservancy and a whole bunch of other organizations and progressive causes, he wouldn't have believed you that that was possible. And so Revolution gave me an opportunity to, to I think, really make the first like sizable impact. It's also, I think, the first opportunity I got to really become a manager. I was brought into revolution for for a lot of reasons, but very few of them were actually working on Bernie's presidential campaign. Everybody who was there was wrapped up into working on Bernie's campaign, especially as it skyrocketed in the fundraising numbers and he skyrocketed in the polls. 
but there was a lot of other business that was coming in. So, so Tim and the team brought me in to manage that business and to build a team to do it. Um, and over the course of three, four years, I managed to become a VP. Um, I managed to uh, build a team that I think was at its height. It was like 20 people, maybe, maybe 15, 20 people. I'll let folks who are listening, they can Google it because I don't really want to talk about it. But like Revolution wasn't necessarily like a great place to work, I think, for for everyday workers. Um, but it was certainly a place where we got to make great impact. And there were so many really great people that went to work every day trying to, to make a difference. And one of the most impactful stories that I think about all the time was the day after Donald Trump was elected, we did an all-staff call. And I'll never forget Tim say, I know you're hurting. I know that this is a bad day, but the one thing you need to remember is that your job has never been more important than it is right now because people are going to get hurt and we need to try to help them. And I think about that all the time in the context of what I do, in the context of my lowest moments during the Trump administration, during the pandemic, during the election, which was an awful lot to go through for anybody. That was just really personally meaningful for me. So, well, that's a kind of modeling of leadership that is extremely helpful to experience when you later go on to run your own firm, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. There's a story that a, a, a professor of mine told me not too long ago at my MBA program, who was telling me about you know two soldiers in Vietnam who were who were captured and they were captured and they were tortured. Like every day they were tortured. One would turn to the other and say. Tomorrow you're going to be tortured, but we're going to get out of here and we're going to get out of here together. I mean, it was sort of like setting the expectations and Tim is, Tim is a Marine. And so it actually makes sense that Tim would kind of communicate that way. But like to tell me, to tell all of us that like, this is going to be bad, but you're important and we're going to get through it together. Like that's an important leadership quality. I think that it's one of the reasons that people like working with Tim so much. I mean, I, I can't say enough, enough good things about the guy. I mean, he, he is a leader and, and I admired the time I got to work with him. What else did you learn? So this is the last thing before you started your firm, if I understand right. What else did you learn both as negative examples and positive examples that you brought to sort of your resolution about how you would run your own thing? This is not necessarily a critique of, of revolution, but of, of, I think, the political industry as a whole. But like, you know, we treat people as if they're disposable. You know, it's better now, but like, you know, we don't give people good benefits. We don't give them good pay. We don't give them a workplace that is, you know, free from toxicity. We don't value diversity, equity, and inclusion the way that we should. And so for me, when I started Authentic, and I know I'm never going to get this right 100% of the time, I have made a million mistakes in my life as a manager and as a leader at my organization and others. But I wanted it to be a good place where good people could do work for candidates and causes that they cared about. For it to be what I wanted revolution to be, which was a place of great impact in a world that's really broken, but for folks to be paid a living wage and have good healthcare benefits and have a 401k and be able to build wealth. And that's been really important to me. It's really important to my business partner, Loren Marchand, um, who she and I have worked together for five, six years now. That's sort of the foundation of why we started Authentic. Um, it, it was really to like try to do this the right way, knowing that we're going to make a million mistakes, but the humbleness of like trying is really important to the way that we approach our leadership at the firm, if that makes sense. I think that's a good way to approach it. What's the founding story for your firm? Uh, well, uh, one day I marched into my office at Revolution and I quit. <laughs> 
Uh, honestly, a hand to God, I can't get into the reasons that I decided to quit. But if you Google it, uh, you'll you'll find it. Uh, just Google Revolution Messaging. I was working with Kamala Harris and and working with a few others, and really felt like I could go off and do my own thing. And and I didn't really know what it was going to be called or how it was going to sort of show up in that moment. But um, decided that I wanted to leave, and 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 Kamala, you know, and her campaign and her team came with me and became the backbone of, of starting Authentic. And really from there was able to bring on a whole roster of other clients, was able to attract a lot of really good, talented people who, um, as much as like Authentic is my success, like Authentic is the success of a whole lot of other people um, who have just done really incredible work, especially in the beginning when like we had no money, we had no resources, we had no capacity. I used to tell people all the time, like we're we're ducks in the water, right? Like ducks look really peaceful above water, but underneath they're just like paddling like crazy. I don't think that some of our clients know how tenuous it was in the beginning to be able to like pull off the work that we did. But in that first year, we helped uh, John Tester get reelected. We continued to build up Kamala's digital presence in anticipation of a presidential run. We worked with United We Dream to protect DACA recipients from being deported, which like is really important. Probably some of the most personally meaningful work I've ever done um, was helping them pay for like DACA renewal fees and supporting the work that United We Dream does. Um, we helped Tammy Baldwin get reelected. I love Tammy Baldwin. She's like um, on my Mount Rushmore of like uh, politicians. I just think she's so great. That first year was was really special. Well, when you say you help these people, you help those people, what are you doing for them? Yeah, well, you know, probably what we're best known for is, is digital fundraising. So managing like their email program, their acquisition program through Facebook and Google and direct buys and other third party vendors. We have a, a really great advertising team uh, run by Jonathan Barnes um, that has, you know, full service, everything that you need from acquisition to persuasion to artificial intelligence campaigns that are so cool and innovative that like, frankly, to be honest with you, I'm not an ads guy. I barely understand what they're doing. Um, I just know that that they like work really well. And we have a creative team that does, you know, really special work. Um, and I should shout people out, by the way, like our fundraising team is run by Sierra Wells. She is super talented and experienced. Our creative team is run by Mina Yee. She is extraordinarily talented. She was Cory Booker's uh, creative director. Um, they all do really, really great work. And, and, and some of them have been with us for a while and some of them are new, but they're all doing like just incredible work. And they're good people. It's really good people. There's a fair number of firms that compete head on or in part with you. How do you see the competitive space in digital fundraising for Democrats? You know, in the context of like economics, right, it's a space with a low barrier to entry, uh, which is like I, I joke all the time, anybody can start their own digital firm, feel free. But there are a number of firms in the space. I think like I talked about earlier, there's two very different approaches, two very different camps I would put them in, which is like folks who are running, you know, programs that are based in, in authenticity, that are based on, you know, telling the truth, building content that is unique to individual campaigns and causes. And then you have folks that are just outright scamming people. Um, and sending, you know, final notice emails that are designed to look like bills that are, you know, robbing people of their, their humanity and like stealing money from seniors. And we can kind of go into the details of that. I think that, you know, one really important element of differentiation between my firm and others is like our firm is, is incredibly diverse and it's incredibly diverse from top to bottom. Like our overall staff, a majority of them identify as you know, women and or people of color. Um, 75% of our leadership team is women of color, not just me by myself, but like myself, Loren, everybody at the firm 
has really prioritized equity and inclusion in a meaningful way. And in, we're, we're getting to this point in our politics, and we've really been there for a while on the Democratic side, where the candidates are so much more diverse, have such varying and different backgrounds. And when I got started, like every candidate that I worked for looked and sounded like me. They looked and sounded the same. Now there's this huge level of differentiation between the candidates. And we want to be able to run culturally competent programs that are reflective of who these candidates are and what their background is. And you know, more so than I think other firms in the space, we're able to, to do that in a really meaningful way. And I think it helps that like we actually care. Like, I talked to somebody who works in, in corporate world that, that I know, and he was just talking about how you know, DEI is good for business. And I'm like, it's, it might be good for business, but it's the right thing to do, period. You're going to have better outcomes um, and you're doing the right thing by lifting people up and giving people a seat at the table who are from marginalized communities who deserve that seat. So the other firm that's identified in an article or two that you seem to be taking on mothership strategies. This is a competitor. Some people might think you are taking them on in order to have an edge in business. What's going on here in this, you know, kind of call out of another firm? Are there a lot of firms like mothership? Is this one particularly egregious firm? I don't know them. I'm aware that they're out there. I'm aware that they've been both successful and reviled in some quarters. Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) <laughs> I'm not taking them on because it's good for business. It's honestly probably not good for business to, I mean, like you said earlier in the podcast, like it is generally considered like you don't speak out of school about other consultants, right? Like you play well and play friendly with everybody. But, you know, when I started Authentic, people would ask me like, well, what what's the deal with your firm? And I would literally tell them we are the anti-mothership. Like we are the exact opposite of who they build themselves to be. And then listen, there's a lot of things that Mothership does that is really smart and admirable. They have an efficiency to the way that they run their programs that I admire. They're very streamlined. They can get emails out the door really quickly. But when you focus so much on efficiency, they've stripped out the humanity of these programs. And so there's just a whole host of a number of things that they are doing that I believe are, are fundamentally unethical. And if you read the New York Times article, So the New York Times article said of the top 10 Democratic groups with the oldest average age for refunded donors in California during the last election that refunded at least $75,000, all were mothership clients. So they are running some of the most egregious programs that, you know, whether they mean to intentionally or unintentionally are targeting and harming seniors and folks that, you know, are struggling to know whether or not these, these programs are real. And they're doing it a number of different ways. They're sending out emails that are all doom and gloom that are designed to scare people. Sometimes they send out emails that look like final notice bills, like they forgot to pay their rent. I've seen ones that have been sent out trying to lure people into thinking they're getting a, a job interview in the middle of a pandemic, which is gross. I've seen ones that have sort of tried to scare people by saying that, you know, Dr. Fauci has been fired. Oh, one great example of one, I don't know that this was mothership necessarily, but I heard a story once about a fundraising email that went out to, you know, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that was like Planned Parenthood gone, Planned Parenthood closed. And people were furiously calling their local Planned Parenthood clinic, wondering if their appointments had been canceled because they thought their local Planned Parenthood was gone. And so there's all these things they're doing, whether it's deceptive communication, whether it's outright lying, whether or not it's just trying to scam people out of their money. Another good example is like a fake match 
um, almost every email that has ever been written for the political side that says donate $5 today and this random anonymous group of Democratic donors is going to give another $5 so you double your contribution or you triple your contribution. It's a lie. It's not true. Some of them are true. Some people put in the work and the time to do that. Very few do. And listen, it's not just a Democratic problem either. The Republicans have been doing this. I think the Republicans have taken it to an art form, especially with like pre-checked recurring uh, through the the Republican platform for donations called WinRed. Because of that, Donald Trump had to return 10% of all the money he raised online last year. 10% had to be returned. Like, that's outrageous. I mean, and I would encourage everyone to read the New York Times article because there are some really painful and hurtful stories of people who were conned out of their money. And, you know, you have to think when you're doing that, are you helping or are you hurting? And I don't know that that's a question that, that, that you know, at least the leadership and mothership asked themselves. I don't know. If I'm a congressional candidate and I can hire you or them, who's going to raise me more money? I will raise you more money. We will raise you more money. I shouldn't say I. We will raise you more money. We'll do it in a very different way. We've raised tons of money for house races. We've raised tons of money. We've raised $400 million in three years for in some of the most important races. We've helped flip House seats, helped flip Senate seats. We, we helped Joe Biden win the White House. We helped Kamala um, elevate to, to the vice presidency. Like, you can do this the right way. And, and by the way, like, Authentic is not the only firm that does this the right way. There are lots of really good firms in the space that also take this approach and do excellent work. Middle Seat is another one. Um, IL518 is another one. There are many firms in this space that are trying to do it right. And I would also say, just to get beyond like the, the sort of like firm versus firm aspect of this interview, there are lots of programs out there that like don't necessarily have a firm, but are still running it in a really ethical way. The best email program in the party, in my opinion, is the DNC's email program. Um, the work that like, you know, Clark Humphreys and so many others have done to turn that program around and build a really thoughtful, engaging, ethical program that raised a ton of money for the DNC, that raised a ton of money for the Biden campaign because it was the same sort of uh, group of people that did it. They've done a really good job. Elizabeth Warren brought all her digital fundraising in-house. I don't believe she had any consultants who were working on that program. It was deep and ethical. I admired that program quite a bit. And so it isn't just like a you know, authentic versus mothership thing. I mean, there, there's a, there's a divide in the party about how you approach this. And I understand where mothership comes from. They're going to say like, look, it's a winner take all mentality. I have to win this election. I've got to raise this money. It doesn't matter how I do it because what's most important is I win this election. But if you leave a trail of seniors who can't afford their medicine behind in the wake of that, like that's not okay. And I can't speak to the Republicans, but we need to be better than that. We have to be better than that. Are there other firms besides Mothership that you feel are doing similar tactics that you don't care much for? Yeah, there, there are other firms. I don't really think it's productive for me to, to, to get into the, the weeds of like every firm I, I don't love their tactics for. Um, I mean, Mothership is the most egregious of this. The only reason that we're, we're talking about it, like I didn't take a shot at Mothership in the New York Times piece. I took a shot at the way that people are, are, are approaching these programs and scamming people. Mothership just happened to be the one that the New York Times highlighted for you know, I think some significant statistical reasons, but this is not a fight between, you know, authentic and mothership. It's not a fight between like Mike Nellis and Greg Berlin who runs mothership. It, it's literally a fight for like how we treat people I and mean, whether or not we treat people with respect and dignity or whether or not we just try to scrape every $3 we can get off of some, some random older person. There was a woman, I think in the article 
who donated to the Trump campaign like hundreds and hundreds of times. And she was like 30 years old and had a developmental disability. Look, do I think that like when people are putting those programs together, they're like specifically trying to target, you know, people like that? I, I don't know, but it is the consequence of the programs that we're running that some folks are running. We need to be better than that. And frankly, I think like if we don't get better about it, regulation is going to happen. Like the Department of Justice is cracking down on fake matches. They're calling it material misrepresentation. Amy Klobuchar has got legislation to ban recurring donations. We're going to be regulated eventually. You know, if I'm a campaign manager listening to this podcast, thinking about what kind of program I want to build, do I want to be investing in these kind of tactics for the next year and a half when the landscape can change? Do I want to be investing in these tactics for the next five, 10 years when there is legislation in the California legislature, I think right now to ban recurring contributions too. So like there's consequences to the way we're treating people and it's starting to catch up with the industry. So you got to be part of the Kamala operation. What did you learn about how she positioned herself? How did you help with that? What can you tell people who haven't been that close to someone that prominent about how things work. I'll tell you about the vice president. She is every bit as intense and engaging as you would expect her to be. I used to to joke all the time. I would give her probably like a a monthly or a quarterly report on her digital program. And, uh, you know, very famously, she was the senator from California and she grilled Attorney, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, um, and he was like, "Oh, you're you're making me nervous. Stop asking all these questions. I'm I'm freaking out." And he was like sweating and stuff like that. Like I always used to say, "Like, yeah, I get that. I understand it." If I came in with a report of her digital numbers, she had a thousand questions for me, um, and there was no amount of not that I would, but there was no amount of concealing. Like if something wasn't going well, she was able to find it. If she thought I was if I was BSing her, she would she would push back on me. And really, more than anything, and this was the this was the thing that made me want to work harder for her. She pushed me to be a better digital strategist by demanding excellence from her program. And when I say that, it's when I first met with her, she talked to me about the kind of digital program that she wanted. And she wanted it to be deeply rooted in who she was and how she talked, which is what every candidate says. But she talked to me about, Mike, I want you to read these couple books and understand the historic context of like why I'm running. I want you to understand the history of these couple of events. I want you to read up on Shirley Chisholm. I think it was like she she told me that she gave me like a book recommendation, um, and like she pushed me to like understand things that like, you know, I'm a I'm a white guy from Omaha. Like I needed some education in order to run that program, and I think like other candidates wouldn't have cared or taken the time. And when I started my own company, she pushed me and pushed our firm to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and. It wasn't the kind of thing where like I was like, oh, this client's pushing me to do something I don't want to do. It's like she made me want to be a better leader. She made me want to be a better business owner. She made me want to do good work for him is because she set a standard of excellence for herself and everyone around her. I don't know that I live up to it. I don't know that I did. I probably am still trying to live up to it. But it, it, it inspired a lot of loyalty. And I think if you talk to other people who worked on her campaign, you'll find similar loyalty. And, it, and it's, it's hard to describe, but like it, it's a real thing. Watching her campaign in the primary, I don't think it went that well. I felt like she was a person who really had the potential to win the nomination and that her campaign underperformed. Maybe she made some mistakes herself as well. Do you worry about her 
if she has to run next time or the time after performing on that stage? No, I don't worry about her at all. Like, you know, I mean, listen, a, a first time presidential candidate is going to have stumbles, but I, I don't know that I've ever seen a candidate work harder than Kamala Harris. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen a candidate deliver in big moments more than Kamala Harris. Like, you know, like for the VP debate, she was ready, prepped to go. When she debated Joe Biden for the first time, she was prepped and ready to go. And like, that was a really hard race. It was a long race. It was tough. People are going to make mistakes. I think we, we as, as politicos kind of got a little bit used to Barack Obama, who is about, you know, as, as, as cool as the other side of the pillow, right? He always had it together. He was perfect. And then we kind of got the exact opposite of that, right? Which was, uh, you know, Donald Trump is kind of like God spilled a person. He was just a total mess for, for four years, but I'm not worried about she, like if she has to run in two years, she'll be ready. Um, if she runs, you know, uh, uh, four, six years, however many years it is, she's going to do very, very well. And she's going to build a great team around her. Um, and she's going to do excellent. I believe that. That's good to hear. You, you said that you did some work for the Biden campaign as part of your work in 2020. Tell me about working for them and what it was like. Yeah, I, I can't do it justice because truth be told, my, my colleague, Jonathan Barnes, was the one who ran point on it. But we essentially got hired in the closing weeks of the election to build out an artificial intelligence-based advertising campaign through Facebook Messenger to specifically reach out and communicate with voters who the Biden campaign was struggling to reach. I think one of the challenges in the COVID era for the Biden campaign and really all campaigns was how do you reach these people when you're not door knocking, right? You can call them, you can send them a text, and then you kind of run out of options, right? You can blanket the airways, which they did. You can send a ton of mail pieces, which they did. But there were like hundreds of thousands of voters in some key states that they were not able to communicate with. We were able to reach a good chunk of those folks. I think we reached like three, 400,000. I don't have the numbers offhand because um, John is the one who did this work. And, I, and by the way, I don't want to take credit for it. Like John Barnes and his advertising team and Mina, who did the creative for it, did some really great work. But I mean, it was impactful. I think that we reached more voters who, who were pro-Biden in Arizona than the margin of victory was. Um, and that might also be true for Wisconsin as well. And so it was pretty significant. I mean, I can't sit here and say that like we won Wisconsin and Arizona because that would be ludicrous. But it's what I tell myself when I'm feeling low. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you want to take your firm? You've mentioned that you've got 40 or 50 people or have had 40 or 50 people. That's a fair amount to manage. It's also a fair amount of people who can really have impact, but it's a services firm. It's, you know, they're, they're tricky to scale beyond that. What do you want to be when this firm grows up? I like to think the firm is, is growing up right now, uh, right before my eyes. Like we've gone from a, a, a startup that could barely keep it together to, you know, I, I talk about this sort of trajectory of the firm, but it was like we got started in the middle of the 2018 election cycle, um, had no time to breathe. 2019 starts. I'm like, OK, I'm going to get everything ready to go and I'm going to professionalize the firm. And Kamala starts running for president and my wife gives birth to our first son in April. So there goes 2019. And I'm like, OK, it's 2020. Kamala's not running anymore. Uh, but here's five Senate races I've got to work on. Oh, also a pandemic. 2021 has been the year, I think, where, you know, me and my business partner and our leadership team have been really intentional and thoughtful about how we professionalize the firm. I don't want to be a flash in the pan. I think that's the that's the thing. I think when you ask people kind of the knock on the firm, it's like, oh, Authentic's done really great work, but can they sustain it for multiple elections? And that's a legitimate question, I think, for any firm that that's done great work. And so from our perspective, it's 
how do we keep our leadership team together? How do we keep our managers together? How do we keep developing our young talent? And how do we keep maximizing our impact in this election? And I think that boils down to, you know, a, a few things. Like one, it, it's doubling down on our diversity. I think like that is the core of like our strength is like we have a team of people who have very different lived experiences and backgrounds than everyone else, certainly different than mine. Um, so really continuing to, to focus on that really being intentional and thoughtful about the processes that we're building out. We've spent a ton of time this year overhauling our hiring process. We spent a ton of time, you know, really being thoughtful about our structure and the long-term um, growth perspective of, of some of our employees. And, you know, and there's a lot of initiatives that are just like that. So I think where I want to take the firm is I want to maximize our impact. Where's the most good that we can do? Um, and like, you know, we're at a point now where we're starting to, to to build websites and other developmental tools and really doing, I think, some meaningful and impactful work on the creative side um, in Mini E's team. And they're doing some really special work that like you'll, you'll hopefully get a chance to see in the next couple of weeks. But that said, I run everything through the lens of like, what's going to make the most impact? What helps build sustainable democratic power? What helps advance progressive causes? What keeps somebody like Donald Trump far away from the White House as possible? Stuff like that. You hinted to me offline that you're a critic of some of the tech consolidation that's happened in the political software area, my old firm being one of the leaders in that. But actually, there's a number of firms right now that are making acquisitions. What's your issue there? Well, let me let me say up front, like I love NGP and think that the work that NGP does is really important. Um, and I think they have a ton of, of super talented people. I'm a believer in competition, right? Like I think that like competition is good for any market. And I understand what NGP is doing, which is, you know, for those that that aren't following this and, and, and honestly, I don't know your audience necessarily, but I don't know how many people are following the tech consolidation in the Democratic Party. But, you know, NGP has bought up a lot of CRMs, which are the tools that we use to, to send out fundraising emails and manage our, our databases. And, and now they own... Action Kit, they own NGP, their own proprietary software, they own Blue State Digital, they own Salsa. Um, I think they may have acquired another one. And so there's really now only two viable options in the political space. I think NGP's tools are great. I have no problem with them. I think the vast majority of our clients use NGP's tools, but I would like to be able to have more options because I think that like more options will invite competition, which will invite innovation. I worry about a market that's so consolidated to the point of it being a monopoly or close to a monopoly that then, you know, sort of removes the innovation piece of it. But I don't think anyone's doing it like with ill will or anything like that. I always joke that NGP is like Thanos just collecting every infinity stone that he can find. Um, well, you know, it's actually not that big a company as companies go. It's big for this space. It's far from secure in its place. I mean, they're one of the things about buying other uh, firms like Salsa is it makes room for new new firms. There's always new entrepreneurs looking at spaces like this and thinking, ah, you know, maybe NGP's bigger. It's going to take them a while to sort of chew through that. Maybe it's an opportunity for competition because of that. And software firms are rarely secure, and people can come in from lots of directions. I'm long out of it, but I I certainly know that they don't think that they're secure in their uh, position. Right. Well, you, I mean, my view of it is you should never think your position is secure, right? The minute that you think it's secure is the minute that it's not. That's the entrepreneur's challenge right there is to always be uh, hyper paranoid, well confident. And it may also be good for 
you know, our party in general to have a concentration of engineers in one place that can pull together a deep and broad product line. I'm curious to see how they manage it going forward and how well they do. They're going to ultimately be judged on their product and their service and how they can deliver. I think that's a I think that's a very valid theory of change. It's not one that I necessarily prescribe to, but I, I don't know that it's wrong. Um, and so I won't pretend like I have the answers. I'm not I'm not a tech genius. Um, so I, I don't know. I just I, I just get a little bit nervous about it. I will say, like, if you're NGP, like you're less worried necessarily about the political market, which at this point they have the majority of, of they're probably the overwhelming majority of, I would guess. They're trying to compete with Salesforce, right? And Blackboard. Yeah. Firms that are far, far bigger. Far, far bigger, playing in a far deeper space. Like my firm, like 99% of our clients are are political oriented, right? We're not doing like a ton of nonprofit work. You know, I understand it. I think what I worry about is like this market is small. So like, is it worth it for like a new a new company to build out its own offering, right? Or do we get stuck with the ones we have? And by the way, like again, NGP's tools are good. They work really well. Um, Action Networks, uh, who is the main competitor right now, their work, their work is really good. Their tool is really good. You know, I would rather have like a more robust offering of, of options. I promise you there are others coming. I can see them left, right, and center. I wonder what, what your considered opinion is about what makes a strong political entrepreneur, an entrepreneur in this space in particular. High pain tolerance, uh, probably more than anything. It's a passion for the work, right? I mean, like I... I didn't start a business because I like harbored some secret desire to be wealthy. We focused the company on impact. And so like for me, it's like, how do we lure people into this space who are good leaders and good managers and can take the time? Like I, I'm the company CEO, I'm the company CFO, um, I'm the company's chief salesperson. It's a very different job than I had before. One of the toughest parts, I think of like rising into management and rising into leadership is like... I was really good at writing fundraising emails. I was really good at like talking clients through ad budgets and really good about getting people to do what I needed them to do to give me the money I needed to succeed. Those skills, very different than what it takes to be a good CEO. And, and I'm still learning them. It's one of the reasons like, I mean, here you want, if you're a political entrepreneur out there and you're wondering how to grow, I think it's like at the end of last year, I said, wow, I had a tough year as a leader. I made a lot of mistakes and it was an impossible year but what can I do to grow? And I decided to go get my MBA. It was an opportunity for growth. So I think more than anything, you want to be a good leader. You want to be a good business owner, have a growth mindset, period, about everything, about yourself, about your management style, about your leadership style, about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, like everybody's got to have a growth mindset for that. That's the biggest thing is like, I'm always trying to learn. I'm looking for the next book. I'm looking for the next podcast, but you've got to combine that growth mindset, I think with a strong sense of self. You can find a leadership book that'll describe whatever kind of leadership style you want to take, right? Um, so there's a question of like, who am I and how do I grow and how do I make impact? And that's kind of what, what drives me at least most days. So, Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I mean, you haven't asked me about my son. <laughs> how old is your son now? He's two. Uh, two is an excellent age. For little kids, I, I people talk about terrible twos, but I always found it to be the cutest of ages. Is that true in your case? Yeah, uh, my son. I don't know where he got it from because it's not from me, but he is so cute um, and very personable. Like, like oh, don't I, sell yourself short now. Am I? Yeah, um, <laughs> I have. A, I have a face for a podcast. I think some would say. 
my son just started speaking in complete sentences, which like I don't quite know how to process yet. Um, <laughs> like I was I was away for a week and I came home and I was drawing a bath for him and he ran his hand under the water and he went, oh, that's very cold. And I went, what? Like, I'm just, <laughs> you're just talking now. That's just the thing that's happening. Or like my wife and I were putting together a grocery list and my wife turned to me and said, uh, Mike, what do you want? And my son just goes, Diet Coke, uh, which is just... <laughs> Not the kind of behavior I want to teach my two-year-old, but he's he's really smart. He's very empathetic. Um, he has a, a great smile. Um, I'm very lucky, and and that's another thing too. It's like it's hard to balance family and a political life, and I'm I'm very blessed. So I feel like I just shoehorned that in for you at the end, but I just want to talk about how great my family is because they are the best. I have I have I have nothing in my life without my wife and without myself. Well, the crazy thing is that a two-year-old seems like, I don't know, you've been in it for a while. A lot of days and a lot of nights have passed, but before you know it, they're 18 and they're in college. And it's just astonishing. You don't even believe how fast it can happen. I'm in, I'm in deep denial. Well, deep denial. I, uh, that's reasonable. And I'll tell you what, it's very analogous with companies. Like if, if you're intense in your parenting and you're intense in your management and your entrepreneurship before you know it you'll have a company that's mature as well and and that's just it's kind of a fun parallel challenging path and i'm i am envious for you for where you are on both of them those are both great things to be doing thank you i appreciate that uh mike anything else you want to say uh no i really appreciate the opportunity and uh my i'll leave you with my final thought which is that you don't have to scam people to raise money online Put that on my tombstone. <laughs> I hope you don't. We don't have to do that too soon. That was Mike Nellis. Mike is at authentic.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.